Hey folks, before we get going with this week's show, I just wanted to give a sincere shout out to some of the listeners that have been kicking in and donating to the show recently. As any of my regular listeners know, I don't do a lot of advertising on this podcast. I've really been more concerned with just getting it out there and getting it done, but the expenses do pile up with costs for editing and hosting and promotions that we do and all that stuff. So really private donations are the only way I have of taking a bite out of those hard costs and keeping the show running. So I just wanted to take a second and say thanks to those folks who've kicked in recently. So Jeff Shukard, Rose Burney, Paul Stoskas, I hope I got that right, Daniel Walker, Lawrence Thick, Chris Green, Claus Jensen, Mark Bronstein, James Bradbury, Robert Lifford, David Cole, Lee Warden, Paul Pemberton, Robert Wood, Creston Lee, Jeff Madsen. Thanks to each and every one of you. You guys are awesome. And now, on with the show. Hello, music nerds. Welcome to Season 2 of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Howdy, folks. Welcome to episode number 45 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I hope the summer is treating you very well indeed. We're in the throes of a Hot one here in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I am coming to you. And this week, I am in conversation with Kenneth Pattengale, who is one half of the dynamic duo known as the Milk Carton Kids. Kenneth came by the hen house and hung out for a while, and we got to talk about all kinds of cool stuff. Um, First off, I have some shows coming up very soon that I would like to share with you. I am out with my band, bass player and a drummer from Vancouver, and uh, Fats Kaplan will be on fiddle and mandolin, and we will be playing the Edmonton Folk Festival the weekend of the 11th to the 13th of August, coming up soon. And in Calgary, I'll be there on the 15th of August at the Speakeasy Garage. I'll be in Carstairs, Alberta on the 16th, and Rocky Mountain House on the 17th. And the next weekend, 18, 19, 20, we're at the Grand Prairie Folk Festival. So we'll be in Western Canada. Oh, and before that, I will be at the Dream Cafe in Penticton, British Columbia, and Vancouver, BC, my old stomping grounds, on the 10th of August. So please come say hi. That is coming up very soon. Now on to today's guest, Kenneth Pattengale. He is one hell of a guitar player, and he's a nice fella to boot. He's been around making music and records for quite a while now, but since 
2011, he's been teamed up with another singer-songwriter named Joey Ryan, and they've been making music that many people know and love as the Milk Carton Kids. Kenneth and Joey uh, had both been pursuing solo projects and careers and making records on their own, but after meeting up and playing music, they realized that something cool was going on. And they've had a really interesting career that's totally skyrocketed over, over the last six years when they started out. And they started with a couple of records, interestingly enough, that they decided to give away for free. And in fact, I think they are still available for free on their website. Um, they went on to sign with Anti Records, who quickly put a stop to that whole free shenanigan thing. And they made a wonderful album with Ryan Freeland, who has also been a guest on this show. He's an amazing engineer that works with Joe Henry a lot. And that album is called The Ash and Clay. Highly recommended. I really dig that record. And uh, yeah, do check out their music if you don't know it already, which I'm sure many of you do. The music they make is sometimes complex harmonically and sometimes deceptively simple, usually with intricately worked out two-part harmonies throughout and punctuated by the guitar work of Kenneth. He's a great player with his own style that's sort of rooted in bluegrass and acoustic music, but it's kind of hard to put your finger on where it's coming from at the same time. Sometimes it's beautiful and melodic, and sometimes it's right out there on the edge where you're not sure if he's going to land safely or not, but he always seems to get there one way or another. They have a great live show, too, that's known for lots of witty banter, but always features stellar playing and singing, and has notably been technically downsized to the point where they both sing and play into one microphone, an Ear Trumpet Labs microphone, which... Uh, looks cool, but also sounds phenomenal. When you see them, you kind of think, well, why doesn't everyone do this? But then you realize that it's actually way harder than it looks to pull that off. But they do it really well. Anyway, we got to talk about all that stuff and how they landed where they are now and everything in between. The Milk Carton Kids' most recent album is called Monterey, and it's very excellent, too. It came out in 2015. And I would just like to thank all of you out there for tuning in and listening and sharing these episodes and putting the word out there. I really appreciate it. It's really all about word of mouth with this thing. And so please continue to do that and drop by my website, stevedawson.ca. That's also the website of the podcast and say hello there if you feel like it. And if you want to make a financial donation of any sort, I would appreciate that as well. That sort of helps us keep going. We have a bunch of costs associated with keeping this thing running, and uh, it's the only way that we have of making that up and making this whole thing possible. So thanks to you, donators, and anybody that feels so inclined to help out in that way. You can also just head over to stevedawson.ca and Go to the podcast page. There's a donation link at the top. And also any episode that you click on has a donation link. So it's very easy and much appreciated. All right, now I'd like to tell you about today's sponsor, Union Tube and Transistor from Vancouver, Canada. They're known for guitar pedals with a focus on quality and simplicity. They build durable, repairable products that are as at home in the studio as they are on stage. I gotta say, I use these pedals all the time in the studio and live. I've got their Moore pedal and a Sonebender pedal, and they both get tons of mileage on sessions and gigs. Great tones and the best fuzz effects going too. Check them out at www.uniontone.com. And now, let's have a listen to my conversation with Kenneth Pattengale. Wish could draw me near, though it's you, my love. It's you I'm running from. Happy 
When I saw you first, it was at the, I think it was the Americano Awards, maybe, I don't know how many years ago, three or four. But you guys both had a, you were using the Ear Trumpet Labs. Yeah, you had four a, of them. Four mics, yeah. So you had a guitar mic each and a vocal mic each. Yeah, and at that point, we, at that point we had then adopted his medium diaphragm, if that exists. Um, I think it's a small diaphragm with, I mean. The Edna? The one, Edna, yeah. Right. Yeah, I think those were, that was the one I saw. You yeah, we had, yeah, we had, at that point, adopted that. But I think out of the gate, we used the two Edwinas and we used something else for our guitars. Okay. There's something still to this day that bothers me when the four-ear trumpets are going. There's a thing that happens at 315 and up the octaves that uh-huh. like once you get a bunch of them they build up and you right. have to address yeah. whereas if there's two of them in line yeah. you don't even have to eq it you know right. if you're recording right um but and so like if you go into the this terrible <laughs> bar in boise that like when you if you want to play boise you have to go play there i've only played like, one place in boise and it was a shithole actually but it's probably a different shithole yeah, well, there's other shitholes. I was on a gig with somebody else there, and we played the, I want to say there's a knitting factory there or something, and it's just... Dismal. Yeah, it's just a rough hang. <laughs> yeah. It's a rough hang, and the people are really nice, and there's there's actually, right the one that I'm thinking of, right next door, there's a really cool record shop, and there's clearly culture there and the whole yeah. and the whole thing, but it's like the... It's like it's just like going over to a friend's house who hasn't picked up for years. <laughs> That's what Boise feels like. But um, oh, I was just saying, like when you're in that dreadful place where the board is in like a rock club that's been abused for years and you fire up it's all high end and yeah and you yeah. fire up the four mics and you're using the house guy who doesn't really care about mm-hmm. i mean he definitely doesn't care as much as you care about your thing and yeah. nor should he right but you're gonna get kind of the bare minimum out of out of the experience when that's happening it's a bummer to have four ear trumpet labs up and everything's building and you can't really right. get it in focus when we're traveling with our front of house guy yeah it's not a problem. He can snipe whatever you want, and they're right. beautiful mics, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then eventually, even that got old to us for a number of reasons, and we and so finally, we just have one microphone, and that's it. And we got, did yeah, away so with monitors and nothing. We don't have any. You just put the mic up, and we no go monitors play. at all. No. Nah. Uh, so does that ever? cause problem like what about outdoor festivals and stuff we played for twelve thousand people at Calgary Folk Festival, headlined the Friday night two yeah. years ago. And that you just that hear it coming from the main pin and, drop quiet. Yeah, yeah. We did hardly strictly probably for twenty five thousand people in that field. Yeah, you just play music. I mean, when it's happening, I'm standing you, six inches from Joey. I right. can we can hear everything we need to hear. Yeah. Um, what about you as a player? Like, do you find you're you're like digging in way more because you can hear yourself? There's a psychological thing. Yeah, but it's a sobering experience. How much of that is real? versus imagined when mm-hmm. you hear playback right to me there's sometimes there's the difference between you know getting on my tippy toes on my left foot to get an extra half inch into the mic where yeah. i can hear everything kind of come into focus the way i hear the room yeah um and then of course like i'll see a playback of the performance and the guitar sounds great even when i'm a foot further back right. it right. doesn't matter it's all psychological at that uh-huh. point which is important to the performance, but I, I, in, if that proves I can't trust myself on like a, on a signal chain level, you know, because also the most important thing in music, 
just in general, in any situation, no matter what, is first it doesn't happen in a vacuum and you can't do things alone. And so you have to work with other people. And the only thing that's important about working with other people is you have to trust them and you have to feel like they trust you. Totally. It's the only thing. Without yeah. it, it all falls apart. Yeah. And so you have to trust... That's where having your own sound guy definitely yeah. makes a huge difference. Probably. You have to trust that when you're standing on stage that if it's not happening... Yeah somebody's going to flag you down and say, hey, what gives? Yeah. <laughs> can't hear the guitar. Yeah. And so... Does that ever happen where somebody's like, I can't hear you guys? Yeah, that's happened before. Really? Well, the first time we ever tried to use ear monitors was at this little club, Zoe's, in Ventura, California. It fits about 30 people. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, it was like, it was the bastion of a really incredible small sort of... Um, I guess folk music scene, kind yeah. of California folk music scene. It was a home for people that otherwise like didn't have a big enough stomp to right. sort of make waves in the in the other obnoxious scenes around there. But you could go up there and find nice people and a friendly uh -huh. place and an audience for you. And we were we were getting ready to go. I want to say we were getting ready to go tour uh, for Old Crow Medicine Show. We were opening a tour with Old Crow Medicine Show as the headliner and the Lumineers as the direct support and we were first of three. It was like the it was the week that the Lumineers got famous. Okay. You know, at the beginning the first gig was the day their tour bus showed up and, you know, like ate their little van right. alive. And then by the end of the tour they were more famous than Old Crow Medicine Show and whatever. Yeah. But so we were getting ready for that tour and as a as a hedge against um our our major bet, which is impossibly quiet folk music, we prepared ourselves to use in ears yeah. for the first time. Yeah, because we were first. Was this three and was we this wanted to be one nimble. mic day or no? This, this was still fifty sevens and fifty eights. Right. Yeah. This was even before the ear trumpet switch, and um, uh, but we were we were going to use in ears with fifty sevens and fifty eights mm -hmm. just because we were first of three and we never knew how much time we'd have right. to set up and we figured if we're going to be if we're going to intend to be as little a pain in the ass as is possible we could have our own little contained thing and when it's our time right. our guy can plug in the four lines right. and we'll have our little mixer and set up to our ears and the whole thing yeah and so we did a test run of that this little place is always up in ventura yeah and somebody um Somebody had patched some things wrong, and the vocals <laughs> were getting yeah. to our ears, but not to the mains in the audience. So we started our set, yeah. and for the first two songs, all they could hear were our guitar mics, right. and we're just we're like whistling Dixie on stage because sure. it sounds yeah. glorious in yeah, our yeah. ears, and we can hear each other, and people are yelling, turn up the vocal, and then we realized halfway through that just the mics weren't even on. So that's an extreme case, and that was, you know, there was only 30 people, and at that point it was all these was people all right. that we'd seen for years, and nobody yeah. held it against us. Yeah, I just wondered if it was like ever a volume thing for you, if you were ever just like, shit, I want to hear myself better than what I can hear no, from my guitar. My main, if I was going to try to be more granular other than just outright dismissing it, I would say that there's never a realism. There, there's something about, with your own ears, there's something about the air that I hear around. Yeah, totally, I get that. 
around instruments and tones mm-hmm. that to me is the context that makes the entire thing. Right. Um, and I don't get that in those. Uh-huh. The main reason is that sort of over the the narrative of the various microphones and how it all changed and went down, uh, the through line, the more important through line and the experiential through line is that it was a slow realization and a slow coming to terms with the idea that all of the control you think you have over yeah. details throughout yeah. the entire process yeah. are a completely useless act of vanity. Right. Um, and they're actually a distraction. When right. you've got four microphones and two monitor mixes and you're trying to dial things in right to feel inspired, um, all you're doing is hindering yourself. Right. And, you know, we did it. We did. We underserved ourselves the first two years of our band because we never really investigated what was the important role of Joey's acoustic guitar in our band uh-huh. because we spent so much time gaining it up in our monitors, getting to a place <laughs> where uh, we were making up for something that didn't exist. Whereas when we had the re- revelation two years in that actually everything in our band needs to be quieter to find the sweet spot of Joey's guitar, yeah, um, that all of a sudden was a <clears throat> musical transaction. We gained right. something in reality that can be reckoned with and, you know, how could how could I ever think of my musical identity as a band being a thing where it doesn't exist unless we can somehow manufacture Joey's guitar to be 10 decibels louder than it really is? Right. <laughs> Learning that we had to play to the volume of his guitar and then how that informed the writing decisions and performing decisions mm-hmm. of singing mm-hmm. close harmony. Um, and then realizing that, again the things that we couldn't really see eye to eye on that would then be mitigated by having two different mixes on stage. Um, right. It wasn't until we finally faced that battle and said, well, how can we be experienced? How can we have a frustrating show and then try to talk about what's wrong when there's no baseline, when we both have heard different shows? Yeah. So then went away the two mixes and we just listened to one mix. Right. Um, and so then, it was a real process of like downscaling, downscaling, definitely, downscaling. Yes, one by one. <laughs> there's nowhere left to go, man. There's no, I mean, <laughs> just get rid of the microphone altogether <laughs> yeah. is the last step. <laughs> well, because by the time we finally got rid of the microphones, we were still on monitors. We had we had one mon- two monitors, but one mix. Yeah. And we had the four microphones, and we had just finished 10 shows in a row. 10 shows in 10 nights, the culmination of which was our taping of uh, Austin City Limits, our mm-hmm. episode of Austin City Limits. And we shared that bill with Sarah Rose, who had, had, I guess, top billing on that show. She had been on it before. Yeah. She has a longer career than us, she, you know, a whole thing. And so, uh, and then also she has a bigger footprint. She was only a trio, but they had a bunch of different lines. She had four guitars. It was clearly like, um, for the logistics of the day. It made sense to go. Yeah, they needed to make sure that her shit was taken care of. And then they had allotted enough time to thoroughly deal with us. But that was the more complicated one. Our thing, like in a pinch, you throw up four microphones, it's probably going to be fine. Um, But still, Sarah's... Sound check finished, and and then the entire power to the moody theater went out, 
and they couldn't get it back online Brutal. for an hour. And at that point, it had hit some kind of how close were you to the show at this dead point? Period. Uh, we were. It was three hours from showtime. It was like okay. two hours from doors. Yeah. But I think there was one hour allotted to us, and then there was a one hour dark stage for union people, and then and then the audience comes in. But so we get up to the union blackout, and and um, but there's no power, and so the head of the union, like they're dealing with that person, and everybody's cool that they've got to get it sorted out, and they finally get the building back online, and so we've got there's not even a time limit. It's just like the minimal amount of time you can do to service you got three minutes show. boys yeah <laughs> and so we put up the we put up phillips four mics and um and we had a wonderful front of house engineer who at the time was traveling with sarah but he had previously spent we met him on the old crow mm-hmm. tour he was front of house and he was front of house for gillian welch for years and this wonderful guy that knows exactly what those microphones need to do yeah you know with all the people that have sort of you know laid the tracks for what we do anyway um so he brought up the mix in the moody theater and he had done that for us before on those mics and made it sound glorious and it was the most atrocious sounding (laughs) like show you could hear and it was something about the design of that room and all concrete, whatever, and it was too loud. Yeah. But if you brought it down, it was too tinny, and it was like, it was a real panic moment. And Joey and I had talked a long time about getting rid of it all and just doing a microphone. And it was under that pressure, it was maybe 60 seconds of listening to how bad it sounded, and I leaned into him and I said... Like on stage, you mean, or listening back to a... It was on stage. I walked the room and then came back. um, Because usually Joey will sit up there like workhorse and play. And, you know, half the time, there's tours where we don't take a front of house engineer out. By no means am I any kind of Jedi, but you have to like, you have to sort of employ some kind of Jedi philosophy. Yeah, of course. Well, no, you have to walk in and you have to like, you have to set the stage for the engineer, uh, the house engineer who kind of doesn't want to be there. He's definitely being underpaid by the promoter. (laughs) Um, he has no reason to care about really what your band sounds like. Yeah. But he also has a bunch of um, he has a bunch of experience that's sort of counterintuitive to making a show like ours right. sound good. And so you have to walk in and say, "Hey, listen, this show is going to be so much quieter than any show you've ever done." Yeah. Also, where's your pickup? Yeah, yeah. It's all this <laughs> stuff. And so you have to do these things, and then you have to walk, and you have, it's a real tightrope thing. And so. I've had many years of experience where Joey just goes up and plays in position and I go out and I try with a very soft touch to get a house engineer who doesn't want to do anything to do the right things. No matter what experience in this business and probably more generally in life is miserable. And so you're constantly (laughs) trying to find a different way to come at the problem to make it just a little more meaningful and unfortunately I'm too stupid to realize that there is no fix and that we should just pick a lane and go with it. But it's that we're constantly in some sort of bastardized um, pursuit of the scientific method, Mm -hmm. trying to keep things constant and change certain elements out to see, you know, how you can make it better. And so there was one time where it was like the two of us, you know, the biggest carbon footprint you can have outside of if we were doing shows in private jets is the time when <laughs> it was me and Joey and a tour manager on a giant tour bus. Really? 
Yeah, dry. I mean, it's <laughs> just, just a little the overkill. stupidest thing you ever heard. But like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> did you have a road case for your microphone? Yeah, right. There's no that goes in the bag. It's like you know, it's like we were just trying to carve out some personal space because we did. It was a stretch of 800 shows in right. seven years, and yeah. so when you do those, going you know, varying all the way from a from a Nissan Rogue that's packed to the gills with a bunch of shit to yeah. a empty tour bus you kind of can take stock of what the thing is and i'm telling you it's miserable on both ends <laughs> uh, but so one of the iterations was going around and playing the country's most beautiful concert halls in a um in a chrysler town and country with just joey and i and um our our no longer employee but he'll always be my friend keith Mm-hmm. Uh, who is merch guide, driver, emotional right. support. Um, you, surely you always have a guy like that, like a driver and a merch guy? Like, uh, Yeah. Okay. Well, recently. It can get real dangerous, though, because when you're driving from Stockholm to Oslo in the middle of winter and uh-huh. there's you know, snow banks 20 feet hey, tall. Canadian, man. You're Canadian. You know what's going on. <laughs> when it's that and, the, and it's, it's um, necessarily stark, but also there's something romantic and and perhaps even existential about it when you've got seven hours of road in front of you and you're you're eight years into a a minimal folk duo with two real troublesome and antagonistic Mm -hmm. personalities Mm -hmm. um nothing good comes of that conversation (laughs) so we try to avoid it at all costs right at this point but you're not like cream like traveling in separate buses and separate hotels no that's not the hang we'll get there i think (laughs) i'm a big enough asshole okay just back up a little bit and tell me about like you guys are a little bit mysterious as far as like where the hell you came from and are like, we yeah man like i i was nice. digging around and stuff yeah. and you know the milk we carton kids are a thing didn't and publish a bio for years in a yeah. band well so I don't like think it exists on the website even anymore what were you doing pre like 20 uh, what's yeah, the first milk carton kids is what 2011 was the first yeah i'm always bad with guys? numbers and dates i exaggerate okay well we'll call lie. it that so but yeah. like Say, like, in 2007, what the hell were you, where were you? What were you up to? Yeah. Well, in 2007, I might have been in my seventh year of university. What were you in university for? Well, I went to Southern California. I went to USC in L.A., where I come from. And I ended up getting degrees in um, comparative literature, in film, and in American history. Oh, okay. But... In the middle of that, I dropped out to play competitive Scrabble and competitive Bridge. Really? Yeah, there's like two years. There's this group at a coffee shop in South Pasadena where I lived. Um, a group of real ne'er-do-wells who me and a, and a retired Episcopalian priest, we taught a bunch of kids how to play Bridge. Really? So I'd taken Bridge classes before that. Yeah. And it was people that just loved to drink copious amounts of coffee and chain sure. smoke and sit there for... 
15 hours yeah, a day. Yeah, it's the perfect opportunity. To yeah, and we that. played all kinds of games. But then we got this, like, we got this bridge group going. I guess it sprang out of, um, it was a group of people who loved to play Euchre, which is, yeah. um, I nobody on the West Coast really knew it. Apparently it was a big thing in the Midwest. But there was this group of, um, of real shitheads that were all competitive. So there was like 12 of us. So you can get three Euchre games going. <laughs> In tandem at this coffee shop, you know, in sunny South Pasadena, California. Uh-huh. Um, and their willingness to play Euchre, which is like a, is like a poor man's version of bridge, was, um, was a, the sort of blinding light of uh, opportunity that suggested to myself and this ex-priest Harold Knowles that maybe this group of... <laughs> ne'er-do-wells could learn how to play a sophisticated game like bridge uh-huh and so we did that for a while and i kind of got deep in that world i dropped down i think there was really? one semester yeah where i didn't play <clears throat> at all but it's not i i barely even scratched the surface you know you'll see these movies now about these kids who who um who are hired for really uh really significant amounts of money by wealthy people to be their, you know, scrabble partner and they fly yeah. around on private jets to play <laughs> tournaments all the way. I never got you anywhere were, you close were at that to level. That. Okay. Um but so that whole time I was making music also. I made my What first... kind of music? What was your music background? Well, I played the I my first instrument was the cello. I played the cello oh, yeah. from age four. Um and I played the cello for about twelve years and then quit. Classical, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Like Suzuki. how deep did you go down that? Like were you far down that path? Like the Suzuki scene and all that? Yeah, I was. I can't. I think I got out of the books. Yeah, or maybe I don't know. Were you playing in a, in any like symphonic setting or anything like that? I played in the um, not in the like serious. My older brother was in the Pasadena Symphony Youth Orchestra. P. No, PYSO, Pasadena Youth Symphony Orchestra. Uh-huh. That was sort of uh, was led by this woman, Rosemary Cravosa, and she, you know that was a that was a well-established youth symphonic program. And he was playing in the cello section in that. I think I played in the in the like baby version of that band, the middle school version of that band. Yeah. But I was out by the time I was fifteen or sixteen. I didn't want anything. I didn't like to practice. You were done. And okay. At that point, I had already were you playing started guitar? playing the guitar. Okay. Yeah, I probably picked up the guitar at nine. Mm-hmm. But I was like a scrappy kid. I liked, um, you know, I like had real shit taste in music. I liked like what? Well, I liked <laughs> you know like Guns and Roses and Metallica, and then right. I started liking, you know, like the the you know like the op ivy era english punk music yeah. and then and but that taste didn't serve me any well because then i was just were you learning all that stuff on guitar Green day and stuff uh learning would be an exaggeration would be a <laughs> would be a really uh, beneficial explanation of what was going on uh-huh. still to this day i don't do much learning it's like an unbridled expression of um, frustration and passion that somehow comes out in a way that people tell me is musical and uh-huh. I feel there's a lot of truth in but it always feels ugly to me <laughs> and it always feels sort of crude and crass uh-huh. um, and somehow I've managed in my life to just amble forward for 35 years at a time without ever having had a boss I had a boss for one day in my life but you know, I've been able to do that and sort of squeak by in by whatever means necessary. Mm-hmm. Ooh, 
Have you ever asked a man to take your place at the head of the table? You could shed away your shit. Like you never sat down and like figured out how to play Sweet Child of Mine or anything like that? As a guitar, a young budding guitar guy. Is that a da 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 da? I might have done that. Yeah. I don't think I could. <laughs> like if I tried it right now, it would probably sound pretty close. But it's not because it's like buried in my fingers. It's because I'm a good faker. Were you playing electric guitar though? Yeah, I was playing electric guitar. You know, like you know, like I won the my high school battle of the bands in ninth grade or whatever by yeah. playing like a sublime cover and I was wearing a stupid hat and I was this like <laughs> fat little fourteen year old that <laughs> was just terrified of life and had yeah. clammy hands all the time and sure. that was, you know, my biggest moment when I was a ninth grader and the all the older kids thought I had some kind of guts because I went and did a thing in front of a thousand people. But you got beat you know, up less after a, that. Yeah, you know, I never really got like beat up, beat up, <laughs> but I did in my mind a lot, uh-huh. you know. But I think that's human nature. I think that. So, th- were you in Pasadena yeah. in high school and stuff? Well, Pasadena sounds too ritzy, I, and by no means was I where we slumming it or was it dangerous or anything. But I was over the river in Eagle Rock, California, which mm-hmm. is um, the most northeast corner of Los Angeles City. Okay, but so I went to L.A. public schools and. Um, like my high school was grades seven through twelve, yeah, and there was thirty five hundred kids there, and it was something crazy. Like a third wow. of them or a half of them didn't even graduate. Wow, um, because it sort of it spanned the range of um, socioeconomic structures. I mean, just, just completely all over the map. Right. It was uh-huh. it was gangster kids in remedial classes that would never see a higher education than ninth grade to. Mm-hmm really gifted kids that went through the magnet program and ended up at Harvard. It was, right. you know, it really spanned that entire thing. Um, and a minority of white kids is predominantly um, Hispanic and Filipino sort of in equal numbers. Um, but it really was a, was a pure expression of a, a unique and interesting community in Northeast LA right. that has since been, if not heavily gentrified, uh, perhaps destroyed in some ways that that cultural thing um maybe just destroyed by its gentrification or it's or it's um it's diluting kind of happens everywhere is that where joey's from too no joey's like silver spoon in his mouth west side no, <laughs> if he ever listens he's pasadena he's not actually interested in me so he won't ever <laughs> listen to this interview well but perfect. you can't Let's kick a man in. when he's down um especially one without a personality but <laughs> He um, no, he didn't grow up in a silver with a silversmith. He, but he grew up on the west side of L.A. in a in a sort of notoriously rich community okay. in private schools and all this stuff. Um, but no, I guess his school was public. But he came from sort of a m- modest backgrounds background, also yeah. that, but but just happened to be in a different place. All you know, all of his friends growing up were mm-hmm. mega rich, but. Coming from that and yeah. playing the cello, getting into guitar a little bit, like how did the whole guitar thing evolve for you to become something that you wanted to pursue? Because it sounds like you had all this other stuff going on. It's funny that the guitar has become such a strong part of my musical identity. Well, from the outside looking in, because I still think I'm kind of a shit guitar player. <laughs> but it was never anything I aspired towards nor was it anything that I felt was the through line of my identity. And actually, 
Did, did you go through periods of like, like practicing six hours a day or anything like no. that? No, never. No, and that's again that like harkens back to my comment. I don't think I have the brain for that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Is you know, cello was always a bummer for me because I didn't have the patience to practice. Right, and so you know, when I repeatedly got when when the when the criticism from all my teachers was that I didn't have the chops, but I had really incredible tone. Yeah. Um, I always took that. I always, you know, hung my hat on that. Whereas as a, as an adult, I kind of look at it and go, Oh, you missed the like critical part of those statements, which they were, <laughs> they were trying to drive home the, uh, the they're idea trying to get you out of the band. You have to practice my friend. <laughs> like you sound great, but you're missing the notes, you know? When they said that, I was like, man, I got incredible tone. Yeah. In that same vein, um, it applied to everything else also. And I can play damn near anything, and I don't play any of it well. I, I don't know the f- the fingering on a saxophone, so I couldn't do that. But like I had a brief brush with the trumpet, and I can, mm-hmm. I've can i laid some trumpet down on some songs, nice. and I can play keyboard instruments, and anything with strings, I can figure out how to make it sound okay. Yeah. Um, but it's not like, you know, I've got a guy that rents a room in my house, and is a dear friend, and is a such an accomplished and amazing guitar and anytime we talk about it it occurs to me that for his entire life he's viewed the guitar as a math problem that he really enjoys engaging in mm-hmm. and to me i don't even i still don't understand an inversion i know that you can play c one way and you can play c another way and this yeah. is and they sound different yeah and to me they both evoke and express different colors and right. emotions yeah and whatever but i don't know it's only been i guess what 20 years later of uh, being an adult mind that thinks about this stuff do i understand can i even understand like oh that's different because the the tonic of the chord is the high tone in the voicing versus the low one but it's right. like i don't understand it conceptually i understand uh-huh. it having played each of those chords probably 15,000 times or something but you must have some theoretical knowledge it. from your cello days right or were you just you'd not paying attention to that part? <laughs> you'd be surprised at how little. I mean, again, sort of I do, but I can still to this day, I could sit down and sight read bass clef on the cello and tenor clef. Yeah. But that's because when my mind built all those blocks, it was, um, see, I won't even know what note it is. I think an F sharp is my third finger on the D string, mm-hmm. but... To me, that note was never F sharp. It was when I saw the the when I saw the note on the staff with the sharp next to it. I knew it was my third finger on the third string. Right. I didn't know it was an F sharp, and right. I never. And it was that, especially with like a monophonic instrument. It's not strictly, but you know, most of the cello repertoire is playing one note at a time. Yeah. Even if it's the harmony line, still everything is given shape by melody and context. Uh-huh. When it's that, it's like. It's like you know that trick where they somebody scrambles all the letters in a word. If it starts with the first and the last one, you can read an entire paragraph even uh-huh. if the numbers are out of order. Yeah. To me, that's sort of the same thing as music. If you know what the melody is supposed to be and what its shape is supposed to be, and you and you have um, a good enough ear that you know when the notes are wrong, uh-huh. 
it sort of sometimes doesn't You're matter. You're only one fret away sometimes, yeah. right? It's just <laughs> I mean, a little... You can still hear it in my guitar playing because oftentimes <laughs> I'm like six frets away, but I will just keep trying one fret <laughs> until I get there. And then everybody's like, man, he's a dope guitar player. Like, I don't know. <laughs> just kind of fucking around. Uh Either you're being really modest or how do you go from just like being yeah. a guy who doesn't really give a shit about yeah. music terribly to getting to the level where you were suddenly with the with when the band formed. Yeah. Um I mean there's something that happens there, like with your Definitely. with picking up the acoustic guitar and and, <clears throat> and how you approach playing and improvising and things like that. Yeah, well there's a few things. And the first one is you have to go all the way back to two thousand and that was, yeah, that was when I I graduated high school in 2000. Mm -hmm. And I went to USC and I got an apartment and I had nothing to do with music in school. But the apartment, I guess prior to that, I had, I had still, you know, there was the high school band and then I had done like a, I'd done a thing where like I conned my way into the <laughs> jazz band. Yeah. But I didn't play any jazz instruments, and so I struck a deal with the jazz teacher that I would um, I would be their resident audio engineer, and I would travel to the festivals and record the jazz band, and we'd put out a CD and this yeah. stuff. And so, like, I was always I was already wearing that hat then. And I I just had an appetite for it and to be around it and to dig into the nuts and bolts. Yeah. And so then, when I had my first apartment. Um, Rather than going completely hog wild on a social level, which I guess I also did in some ways, um, but that all of a sudden was a space that was twenty four hours available to me to right. experiment, and so yeah. I put my first shitty record out in two thousand one. What what is it? It's I shouldn't even say the name. I put, <laughs> I put out eight records before you did the Carton Kids. Yeah, under your own name. Yeah, all under my own name. That has been the, so well buried. Yeah, the first four, <laughs> thank God, the you can't even find. Mm -hmm. Are they solo? Yeah, record like your songs and stuff, or are they instrumental or what are they? Yeah, they're my songs. Okay. And half of the songs were instrumental. I guess. Well, yeah, the first one it was like half and half, but they were all my songs. Just you. There was maybe a BB King cover or something. So you were listening um, to some blues and stuff. Yeah, I had a big blues period in my yeah. in the I can hear that in your years. Plan, sure. Um, but you never sat down and like figured out BB King. I mean, you could play them obviously, but it wasn't the thing where you like sat down and like yeah, out how to play every no, solo. No, definitely not okay. start to finish. I've never once in my life sat down and learned guitar licks. Okay. Because um it seems so unsatisfying at the end. To me, there's such a fine line between, especially as an instrumental player, there's such a fine line to me between um, inspired creativity and plagiarism. Just mm -hmm. when you're working within 12 notes in, or 11 notes in a scale or whatever, um, and the constructs that you know most of the songs you come across whatever there's such a limited vocabulary yep. of what's it has all been done in one form or another it's all been done <clears throat> and i feel like if you sit down and you do those things there's nothing like what would be the fun anymore right because the the most exhilarating thing about music i've always found especially about performing music 
is that you get lost in the weeds and then you have to band together with the other people around you and figure a way out. Mm-hmm. And the whole while you're trying to do it without letting anybody know that you're lost. I totally and know that feeling and I know what you mean, yeah. And it's exhilarating and it's also, it's like um, irrespective of the audience, it's um, it's life affirming. Right. You know, that's the one way you know that you're alive or that you're doing stuff. You can get the end of it and then you can listen back to it with all the people that you just did it with and go, well, man, we really licked that one. <laughs> um, I wish there was an alternative universe in which I was able to play the Dvorak cello concerto start, start to finish and I wish I could play it exactly like Jackie Dupre did in the early 70s. And and if it was that and I and if you listened to it and somebody said that's an exact replica of what Jacqueline Dupre played I that would be a life affirming experience for me but that's because it's Dvorak talking about the acoustic guitar I can't imagine anything more boring than me playing Norman Blake licks start right. to finish on a track and getting to the end of it and going wow that sounds really nice right. it's like if that's the case fucking Norman Blake should have played it yeah he lives a couple couple hundred miles away go get yeah. him or or I mean and, and there's and there is that kind of stuff where um, I guess in context it becomes so important that uh-huh. That exercise is actually valid, also. Yeah, you know, I think that exists with with um, a lot of Bill Monroe's music. I think that right. exists. You know, there's certain lanes where that phenomenon exists, but the kind of stuff that I'm capable of and the kind of waters I'm in, it's like it only feels truthful if I'm sufficiently inspired by uh, the music that inspires me, and then. I don't learn how to play it. I I use that as some kind of information right. to help inspire just how I'm informed. Right. And then we see how it comes out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um that's it does that I think that really comes across in your playing. But like so how It also makes me really unsuitable to like playing with others. You know, we did a session recently where I was playing guitar and that's that's five more people in the band than I'm used to. And right. so all of a sudden the available space yes. changes. Yeah. And in my mind as it's going, I that day I constantly battle back and forth between this thing of, well, they asked me to be here as a special guest, so they must want the thing that I do. Right. And that requires a wide berth, and that's a little bit... It's just... it's. Um, it's very assumptive when you're standing in a room with five other people that if you're going to do that, it's like you were playing pedal steel on that thing and the amount of times where I would see an idea through and sort of in real time go, well, that's that's if I was sitting in the pedal steel seat, I might be thinking, what the fuck is that guy doing? <laughs> He's leaving me no space here. 
yeah. how can I play with that? And it's also the way I play. It's there's so many accidentals, and it's so it's all about context and melody that yeah. it's not an easy thing to play well with others. And so again, I'm specifically lucky in in the sense that my current band is a vehicle that's perfect for that kind of exploration, right. and it's it's flourished and matured over the number of years that we've done it. Yeah. I like to tell the story that I didn't really actually ever play the guitar like that until Joey and I started playing. Yeah. And even as recently, you know, so there was four records that were real stinkers and then four of your own records. Yeah, four of yeah. my own records that were real stinkers like had I grown up in in 1960 instead of 1980 those just wouldn't exist. Right. And I wish it was that. And yeah. I I, but also I'm grateful because I didn't grow up in 2000 where it's they'd be on YouTube totally forever, forever, <laughs> and it would be such a bummer, and I'd never be able to shake it. And there's still some stuff. So then, like, I think by record five or six, there's so, some so you're of it that these... exists on iTunes and Spotify and all that. I've gone for miles without a breath when I've had everyone on my tail. Oh, I ain't never had enough And I ain't never been to jail oh, Everyone I knew Are all gone now And I say what's done Ain't never done You're making these records like on your own in, in your house kind of thing? Yeah. Okay. But then in the middle of that, I got hired to this big Warner Brothers International film as a composer. I, How does that happen? Yeah, that was... Well, I lived next to this German couple downtown who were stop-motion filmmakers. Yeah. Um, and real wonderful people. And at a certain point... Well, she's Turkish. He's German. But at some point, they moved back to Hamburg, and um, she was the line producer on a animated film for Warner Brothers there. And those first four shitty records were sitting around on the on the editor's desk and, and ended up comprising all of the temp music. And so when they decided really? to hire a composer, yeah. And it was just, she always loved what I did. And, um, and are they, they're just solo guitar-y no, records? No, it's different shit. It's like, um, for, for that phase of my life, it was on the heels of, of real deep, long periods of listening to... Um, Tom Waits in one lane and Duke Ellington in the other lane. some Rebo sneaking in there and there's definitely lots of Rebo sneaking in there um, but then also like Duke Ellington compositionally was an influence or just like the all general, of it yeah all of it I'd say primarily on a composition level but then also you can't discount 
the it's still something I battle with when you hear Johnny Hodges blow an alto saxophone the way that it sounds yeah is confused in our brains because we think that it's that's what 1940 sounds like but it's not it's what Johnny Hodges sounds like right and if he lived now and he blew that horn in this room it would sound that way and your mind would go fuck I've I've got this all wrong You know, the nice thing that when you have a little success is that people say yes to you more than, you know, when they used to say no to you. Uh And so a few months ago, I ran into Ricky Skaggs at the airport. Yeah. You know, one of the all-time greats. Yeah. His contribution to the history of music is so profoundly important. And it's one that in real time right now... He he gets a lot of credit in real time, but I believe that he deserves even more. Uh-huh. Um, and so I had the good fortune of I get to do cool things like run into Ricky Skaggs at the airport, and right now our band's on like a specific and necessary break. But we had we had a show scheduled that we we wanted to say yes to, um, but I was dying to find a different angle at it. I didn't want it just to be Joey and I to go in and play the same set that we'd played for 18 months in a row and sort of lost in, inspiration in. Um, and so our plan was to go out to play this function that we were invited to and to do a set entirely comprised of Felice and Boudlow Bryant songs. Really? Yeah. Cool. Um, like which ones? Like, I mean, all of the all of Everly Brothers hits. Yeah. And they got deep into into country music in a way and you yeah. know even weird obnoxious you know rocky top they wrote rocky top right. and we're gonna play that whatever we were planning to do this whole thing um just as a way to play music together joey and i in a way that we haven't slightly in years different and find yeah. a different access yeah. point and the all the everly brothers comparisons we always get it, you know, we we never listen to that stuff. It kind of it just really? seems neither here nor there. Not the music. Like I'd yeah. listen to everybody. But I, I'm saying oh, the like comparisons. The, okay, yeah, the yeah. comparisons. It's just it's useful for a listener. It's completely useless on an yeah. artistic level yeah. to even consider any of that. We thought it was kind of a cute idea that we could do, you know, we could we could sing those songs and actually prove to people how little we sound like the Everly Brothers because the Everly Brothers and Felice and Boodle's material and their period of time that it t- happened in, all of that stuff is such an insane 
confluence of events and time that mm-hmm. yielded one of those special musical things in the world, why the hell would anybody compare us to that? Like, we sing nice together. We don't sound like Don and Phil. Those guys are, are you know, gods. Um, anyway, we thought that would be fun. And so then I ran into Ricky Skaggs at the airport, and, he, and uh, we'd known each other for a few years, just casually seeing each other at mm-hmm. different events, whatever. And he very graciously... Um, said, as people said at some point, he said, well, son, we should really pick together sometime. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where you can't tell if that's somebody, somebody <laughs> saying just to be nice or, you know, is that, yeah. do they say that to everybody or do they mean it or whatever? And I said, I didn't even clear it with Joey. I said, well, Ricky, we got this gig. You should come play with us. And he took out his phone, and I'll never forget it. He took out his phone and put a thing in, in the eye calendar, and he goes, well, son, you've got a date on hold. Really? Yeah, and sure enough, <laughs> three months later, we're in eastern Tennessee, and Ricky Skaggs is playing, uh, you know, Bury Me Beneath the Weeping Willow Tree, and we're singing three-part harmony, and he's Heavy. taking the mandolin break on Rocky Top, and yeah. and I forced him into playing a weird version of Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here in nice. F-sharp, and he's, yeah. you know, it's Ricky right Skaggs. Yeah, man. But the thing I'm reminded of was the first day we were there and it's this beautiful sort of um wooded setting in in a really small venue in eastern tennessee and we were able to make a vacation out of it mm-hmm. and have a few days for rehearsal and stuff the first time we sat down to play music it was in the afternoon on this porch in a little cabin outside of knoxville and we started playing and ricky played the first note on the mandolin and it was instantly recognizable mm-hmm. all he did was put a pick on the a string of a mandolin and when he played it the mind went holy moly that's it's ricky skaggs oh, it's, it's remarkable It's remarkable, and it's not something to take for granted and take lightly because, you know, to the extent that Ricky could have anything to do with that consciously yeah, is, uh, to me, is, is not not even to the point. To the extent that he shaped that or whatever or yeah. is aware of it, I'm sure there's an aspect of that. I'm sure there's an <clears throat> aspect of learning and hard work and, and curation, but you can't deny that just physically, the way the person's put together and how that dictates their capacity to even strike an instrument. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm well, it's such would, second nature to a guy like that too, yeah. right? Like he didn't sound like that when he was 21, you know, but he'd already been playing for 15 years at that time. Right? Although like there is stuff. What I'm saying is, even though, even if it does mature and even if it changes and even if it refines, there is something that is recognizable mm-hmm. there. Where when you hit it, it's like I, probably the tendons in his arm exist in a certain way right. that help define what that is. And what I'm saying is that that's um, that's equally apparent to me in you know in a Johnny Hodges alto solo. Right. Yeah, is the way that that guy blows a horn is um, 
so specific to him. It's so at- specific. And the beauty of it is that if it existed in a vacuum, it wouldn't necessarily be inspiring or not. Yeah. Um, and so what's really important is all of the contextual elements, the way that, um, the, the way that he exists in context on those records mm-hmm. with the rest of those players, mm-hmm. the way that in, in a, at a certain period, the way that Duke Ellington would actually write parts for him when yeah. he'd been in the band long enough. And then also Duke was, was not of that mind. It was still in that era where there was a time where Johnny Hodges, you know, hour is up and he's yeah. out or maybe he moved on. I don't even know what that story is, mm-hmm. but there's, you can hear in certain recordings when, that part's intended for that player and how it leans into what right. that identity is and how people reckon with that stuff. Um, and so it's a really fascinating idea that what ends up becoming an identity on an instrument, and there's so many of the musicians that we love that have that identity, how much of it's intentional and how much of it is is just a result of years uh, of the sum total yeah, of things you totally know? yeah so n- now you also say that you know like you yeah. never sat down and learned like norman blake came up like a norman yeah. blake solo which I, I totally get and understand um but you must have done a lot of listening like you're obviously well versed in all kinds of stuff you've listened to bluegrass a, a lot probably or at some point a fair amount you Only know it, recently it doesn't yeah i mean it doesn't sound you don't sound like a bluegrass player but the no. context of what you do you know there's elements of that kind of stuff so i want to say I, are, I were you an were you like a deep avid listener of music at at some point as well yeah always have been uh-huh. but i think it would be surprising what that is like I can't recall having ever heard a bluegrass song until definitely after our, my band started. Okay, and I've grown a real deep appreciation for it, especially because we've been sort of lumped in with these folks, and so right. we've made very many friends in that community. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then also yeah, that's one way to learn say it. I sound like, and I go, okay, I guess well, I should. What about to what it. about stuff like the Everleys that you mentioned, and you guys do get compared to them, or Simon and Garfunkel, things like the obvious comparisons. Were those bands that you did do a lot of listening to 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 really like understand their approach to harmony? And no, like no that? deeper than than anything else. Yeah, than what you'd be aware of. Uh-huh. You know, I so, know the Simon and Garfunkel catalog because there comes a certain point in you know a boy's life where it, it, you'd, where that you'd record comes it. on and yeah. you you listen to him for a while and then you move on to the next thing. Yeah, but. No, especially the the harmony blend in our band in Milk Carton Kids is um is an expression of just sheer willfulness. Mm-hmm. Tell and me, have, tell me about how you actually like say there's a new tune on the horizon. Yeah. Um, how much time do you spend like because because you guys pretty much maybe exclusively I don't know offhand but like you sing everything together. There's no like. We've pushed lead towards singer. that. Yeah. Yeah. Like it seems like on the new record, I can't think of one where you guys aren't singing together this, the whole time. Is that true? Uh, there's only one, but oh, okay. it's, um, and it was by, it was on purpose. I wanted that record to be entirely duet. So what's the because process? The previous like? records were not, the previous records, they were, yeah. I think Ash and Clay, it's like, a third is me singing and then choruses or yeah. duo and then a third Joey and then the other third is duo singing. But on Monterey, there's one song, this song Sing Sparrow Sing, that just doesn't belong on the record anyway, but 
we both really liked the piece of music and it came by during the time when we were writing. Yeah. And when it got to the point of like fleshing out arrangement, it only confused things and made it worse. So um, when we were recording that record, I just played the two minutes on right. once and then that was that. And that was we that. put it on the record. Sing, sparrows, sing loud, hide under here. Because your music has, like, such a cool element of, like, um, improvisation and and at-the-momentness, but at the same time, it's, like, highly arranged music. You can't just walk in there and, like, guess at the... Like, the harmonies are super intricate, and, yeah. like, you must spend a lot of time on the harmonies, especially. Yeah, so the harmonies, the the truthful answer, this is where my modesty will will disappear <laughs> fully. Um, I have uh, I have an obsession with melody uh, with harmony, uh-huh. and I've had an obsession with harmony for as long as I can remember. Yeah, um, I specifically have an obsession with harmony in the pursuit of the idea that um, the the idea of the parallel third needs to be proved wrong at any moment possible uh-huh. yeah, in I the can human hear that. experience. Yeah. Um, and so it started, as long as I can remember, if there was a song on the radio, I'd sing along, but I would sing a harmony part that I was making up. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, oftentimes, I still struggle with this. I struggle with it as a producer, that there's, there's, uh, there's so many ways to skin a cat right. musically, and there's so many options for what that harmonic context can how that can push a a musical experience around yeah um my brain it craves discovering them all Mm -hmm. and oftentimes it doesn't know which ones to subtract to make it even work right um and so as a producer i have to really exercise restraint yeah extreme restraint yeah just to make things sing and again in my band with Joey, it's it's purposefully and necessarily restrained. There's only four things. We don't have the option of going and adding anything. Right. And part of that's by design because we both know had we the option, we would spoil it for everyone. <laughs> um, so what so what is and, the what is the process like of actually doing the vocal arrangements? Well, so lots of guys? times it's one of us will write a song. Yeah. And then Do you write separately? We, it happens always, but I think we most comfortably have fallen into a place where we write separately, and then we have a arrangement with one another that is as soon as we can possibly stomach the vulnerability of sharing with another person, we do it because mm-hmm. then we're merciless adversaries and we take no prisoners. Really? Yeah. Does it get we, ugly in there sometimes? Yeah. <laughs> It always gets ugly. Um, <laughs> and that's part of the fun, too. Uh-huh. But the way it's the way that it's shaken out, it's it's actually blossomed in, into a really beautiful thing because Joey has has a really strong, innate definition of 
of music for himself. Whatever his, whatever formed his musical mind, it did it in a way. And this this extends to his personality in general. And so maybe it's just a stylistic thing. Mm-hmm. Is that he's a very defined person. You know, there there's there's a there's a truth and there's an untruth and there's not too much gray area. Mm-hmm. Um, not that he doesn't struggle with, uh, you know, life like the rest of us. Not that there's, there's um, never ambiguity, but generally he's kind of a man who knows what he's after and knows what it's yeah, like. That's um, good. And it's good and he's a relentless workhorse. So I can make him, I'll make him sing a line 50 times on loop He'll do it the same way, and he won't change it. And he'll, you know, and there's not, um, he's not a prisoner as I am to this idea of the of of endless variation. And, what else could be out there? Yeah, and what right. else could be there? But so he he finds his part and he sticks to it and he can do it. Yeah, a and if you times. Yeah. yeah, and if you make a change, if you make a change to a note, it takes him. You know, he and I are opposite in this way. It's it's like words. Also, he could mm-hmm. hear it song once and two years later he could recite you the words whereas this is going to sound like it's a joke it's not there are songs that i sing on stage every night during our show that i don't know the words to the song (laughs) it's just like muscle memory yeah and like if joey went sick and his voice went away and i had to perform the show i couldn't tell you what the words are i couldn't write them down really so you're kind of like following his lead like that just kind of like yeah but also i sing every word like i yeah, my body knows them. My mind knows them somewhere, but consciously I am unaware of them. They, many times they don't matter to me. I can't see the north star from this bed beneath the sky, and I betrayed, rescued by. There must be a process where you don't even perform a song until it's like second nature. Like you've done it so many times. That's how. That's where we try to push for. But also at the same time, it's not entirely... I'm pretty quick on my feet. So like if I don't know a song, but you put a lead sheet in front of me mm-hmm. with words... Mm-hmm. Um, if they're not in the if they're not in the muscles if they're on the page I can read them in the same way. Okay. And sometimes I'll flip out. Sometimes there'll be a there'll be like a dyslexic kind of quality that comes to it and whatever. It's just it's become apparent over years that while I'm very keen on getting the words right in the writing process mm-hmm. once it comes to performance and arranging. Yeah. To me. Um, they're second nature. They're a uh-huh. they're a vehicle for musical expression, and that when you get that right, ironically, the end result is that you're creating better access for the audience to hear right. what you've written. Yeah. Um, but you at that point you don't have to grapple with them. You've already written them. Yeah. And you just have to contextualize them correctly. And when you when it comes to recording, do you guys have it all down and you've played them a zillion times on stage, or are you messing with well, it in the studio too? Well, that's something we fight with. Oh yeah. For our first, for our first two, uh, our first record, we had played all the songs uh, because we were playing them. They were our first songs, so we were playing mm-hmm. them on tour, and we took a short break in 
in the tour to record the album, and we recorded it in three days. And I so, still so, don't like the album. Just just to talk about that for a sec. Yeah. So you guys hook up somewhere in California or whatever. And yeah. was that a, that was like a thing? You decided like let's do this duo together. Oh yeah, where we... I saw. I was. I had been. I had put together this band for. I guess it was my eighth or ninth record or something. I put together t- together. I finally kind of stumbled upon the band I had worked for for years, uh-huh. worked towards for years, excuse me. And it was um, it was uh, upright bass, pedal steel, accordion, and fiddle. And I was playing the guitar. Cool. And I was playing these kind of dusty songs that had a thing to them that I really, you know, it's what it was what I was working towards yep. forever. And I was finally kind of getting it to a point where people were coming to listen. And, and I was, you know... I would get to go do a session on KCRW and I'd get, you know, whatever. These things were, um, I'd finally, after all the years, gotten to a point where it seemed to, like, get going. Yeah. And, of course, what comes from that is that other people come and listen to your thing. And there was there was a pretty vibrant scene of people in L.A. at that time that are all still friends and was, was a whole thing. And so... Uh, at the same time, I found out about Joey. He found out about me because we were hanging with the same people. Okay. And we saw shows, and I went and saw a show of his. And um, you know, it's, it, it's, it was uh, it was sort of faded. Yeah. You know, because I heard it, I was like, "Oh man, that guy's right in my lane." And it's and it was uh, it was deeper than the music that he was playing or that I was playing. There was just there was just some kind of symmetry between whatever our thing was because yeah his show at that time and his records were were too they tilted too far into like an it's not pop music because that is a different thing but it's like the it's the poppier side of what that independent songwriter yep. thing was yeah it was you know the the guy that was making his records was cutting his vocals up to fit on a grid and he was right. having him sing them in a real specific way. Whereas, you know, I'm the opposite. I was mm-hmm. trying to, you know, I was trying to make everything I ever did sound like it was recorded at three in the morning right. while everybody was drunk. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Within the first 15 seconds of playing his and my eyebrows raised and kind of, yeah. like, Oh, huh. we should probably drop everything and do this. Right. I mean, it was that. It's that obnoxious and that faded and that stupid. That so. But how long did it take you to get with mine? A, a material together to start well, touring? Well, immediately and stuff. a month later, he had he had uh, he probably had fifty shows booked throughout the rest of the year just under his own name. Yeah. On various tours, and uh, immediately I hopped in the guitar, the car, and we went and played those shows and. Mm. Um, I learned his songs and he learned mine. And the were first... these like dingy bars with very few people there, or was there a following already? Yeah, uh, it ran the gamut. It mm-hmm. was, it was those. I remember playing, you know, what felt like an open mic in Ojai, right? You know, where there's eight people, but at yeah. the same time, he'd built a little following for himself in New York, and so the first time we went to play New York, it was at Rockwood for you know ninety people or something. You know, okay. it kind of it. it 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 just it was all over the place, right? Um, but it was largely, you know, he had done the thing that most 
that normal people do, which is that he wrote some songs and he'd gather people around to play them with him and he'd mm-hmm. make some records and then he made friends and he'd go on tour with them and do all that and that was his experience. We have seen eternity. How can I tell when you really end? I'll imagine that you lead to other worlds entirely where we can save ourselves and start again. Yes, we need to save ourselves and start again. California, California, no, I love you. California, when I leave, no, you wait for me. It's in the sun and in the weather, no one else has loved me better. California. By the time he and I went on the road, I'd never played music outside of California. Really? Well, that's not true. I did. One time I got the swine flu in Mexico and then played. <laughs> it was the first time I came to Nashville, actually. And I played the basement to. Uh, new faces oh, yeah. whatever sure. thing yeah. somebody hooked me up on that yeah but i had the swine flu i was patient zero of the swine flu seriously um, yeah you were the guy that brought it here i think so <laughs> and it culminated with a it was a three-night stand at the the hotel bar at the the muscle shoals marriott i had to do i had to play it was three nights in a row and i had to play like th- Three hour long sets each night, you know, for fifty dollars or something. Yeah. And the first night there were these people. I knew a person in Alabama, and 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 so she sent some family people. You know, there was eight people there sitting in the lounge listening, whatever. And the second yeah. night I came in, there was nobody, and so I started playing my thing. And I don't know, like I told you, I don't, I don't really know songs and stuff. Right. Um, so it's my songs, but then I'll go into, you know, whatever, extended explorative sure. jams and open tuning yeah, on yeah. acoustic guitar just to kill 20 minutes. <laughs> um, but at that one, there was nobody except about 15 minutes in, a group of 20 people came in, but they were there to watch the NCAA basketball tournament on the they were, TV. Yeah. And so that was my birthday, and I had the swine flu. I was dying, and oh these 20 God. people, and then they yelled stuff at me. It was bad. Well, you're supposed to do a bunch of gigs, and then those ones get canceled out by the really good ones. You just never bothered right. to find any good ones. I never found it. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, and that, <laughs> You're saving that till your, till your 30s. That was apparent with Joey, because sometimes yeah. we'd go play these horrendous gigs, and I'd mm-hmm. be like, why are we doing that? And he's like, that's how you get from here to there. And remember that gig in Minneapolis? That was awesome, but we can't yeah. just go there. I'd go, okay. But so that entire year, it was half his songs and half my songs that we had sort of rearranged for the duo. And were you playing acoustically, like into mics and no pickups and that yeah. whole deal right out, out of the gate? Yeah. I think it occurred to us that when we sang together, there was something going on that neither of us had ever experienced before. Yep. And that was the only thing that mattered. like you like So at what point and, do you make that first record? Well, so we also have a sneaker fourth record, which predates the, our records. We have a, we have an album called Retrospect. Yeah. Yeah, and that, so that's the first one. And those are all the songs that he and I wrote before we knew one another. Okay. 
And and so we recorded that in January of 2010 or 11. And pretty much on your own, right? Yeah, I did that. Well, we did it live. We did it at that place, Zoe's, that a few years later we had the in-ear monitor debacle. Okay. (laughs) Um, But so we went up there, and I brought a little rig, and we recorded it on 57s and 58s. I just put it in the other room. I split the microphones and put the rig in the other room, and we recorded that. And then uh, a dear friend, a wonderful guy named Al Scro out in L.A., mixed it and kind of put it together. Okay. Um, And that was in January. I can come up with many excuses as to why Joey and I don't deserve the career we have. Um, <laughs> I could, I could, I could rattle. I don't think that off. matters, man. No, it doesn't matter. Yeah, we can't, we can't, can't uh, not have it now. It is what it is. You know, however it went down, we're deserving of it. It's that's that's why we work as hard as we do to make it sound good. Is partially out of from that guilt. Yeah. Um, but more than that, we've been the recipient of. A, a number of really lucky things that you can't you, you can't have control over right you know if if Mumford and Sons didn't do a weird obnoxious thing to folk music and Americana music sort of exists in a in the broader mind of yeah. of the masses yeah um we wouldn't have half the career that we have now and it's not because yeah and it's not yeah. because there's a direct correlation and i know mark and love him dearly and i even like his music i just don't like what on a you know on a global level what it did to the perception of the music but also it's kind of the polar opposite of what you guys do totally but also you can't deny that when they invigorate that many people in that way right uh, it changes the mind of what Americana music is or, so, or what roots music is in the mind of somebody who otherwise wouldn't be open-minded to playing a band like mine. And then they play it and they discover that they love it. Yeah. And so that the, the some total positive effect that happens with this, this kind of thing um, is so important, but it's really confusing when you get into the details, you get out right. in the woods there. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't have found the fans that we have we wouldn't have signed some of the deals that we signed right you know all this stuff has a wide effect um you know if 15 years earlier if if gillian welch and david hadn't sort of proved that you could get away with two guitars and two voices on a record yeah i don't know if joey and i would have had the guts to try it Mm -hmm. you know they 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 kind of blazed the trail trail through fucking crazy territory to even make it possible and in their wake are a million artists you know least among them are us um but you know just on that level alone it wouldn't have happened had that not happened before us Brightest ones of all early in October fall. That's the way that it goes. That's the way. While the dark ones go to bed with good whiskey in their heads. That's the way that it goes. That's the way. Yeah, you need yeah. those. You need those experiences right to, to yeah the the, the time bring was the completely right that all yeah. of this stuff lined up where when he and i started playing together we there was so much information that was primed at the ready to find 
uh, find its place. Yeah. That then now this last six years has been a have been a slow, um, a slow experience of sort of picking through all of that stuff one by one and figuring out how to make the most of it and make it better and, mm-hmm. and do this and that. And so, exactly at that time, again, one of the fortuitous circumstances was that this is entirely Joey's, uh, to Joey's credit. But he had spent all this time on the road with people and having relationships with all the people in our community, you know, all this stuff. And so as we recorded the retrospect record, we had been writing all the material for Prologue. And right at that time, he had a relationship with a guy called Joe Purdy, who's a wonderful musician who was sort of like the little king of the molehill of that scene that we were in. And he was about to do his first big tour in years. And he asked us to come on it so long as we'd be the backup band for him. And so right out of the gate after, you know, finally figuring out the the atrocious band name that we have and the material <laughs> that we carried with us was this thing where we got to go out and do 40 shows back to back in front of, you know, 200 to yeah. 600 people. That's great timing. And, and it the works timing really well. was right. Yeah. And so in the middle of that tour is when we came home and made the prologue record. And yeah. we had the foresight and the capacity to. Joey had a booking agent at the time that then became ours. And we had the ability to see those dates from the Joe Purdy tour and then book an entire tour ourselves three months yeah. later in the same market so that when we went to Boise, we're on stage playing for Joe's audience of 200 people right. and we can say, we're coming back on September yeah. 2nd. Yeah, that means and, a lot. Yeah, and you know, and invariably 40 people would come back from each of those yeah. things. And so we were able to start a career for ourselves. I necessarily have to believe that my talent is deserving of all of it. Yeah. But also when I look at the way it went down, it was really lucky how it all fit together. Sure, you can and always so, say that, but... But, you know, at the end of the day, you guys have a great thing together that that's the real reason, right? I mean, all those other things, it could have gone down a different way. Would it have happened the same way? I don't know. I like to think that that's how it goes. I also feel like I have experiences in life, specifically with other musicians who deserve so much more credit and success that they do. And oftentimes I can't tell, is is it just that they've been unlucky or is there... Is there something that they actively do that gets in the way of it? Or, you know, what is it? Right. And it's all madness. Yeah. All I know is that for me, I'm a lucky piece of shit who writes <laughs> songs for myself and sings just like all the people around me. Um, but I have, first, I have a lot more success than a bunch of people who I think are equally deserving. And yeah. then at the same time, I don't think I have as much success as I deserve. And I'm going to keep pushing forward right. and keep doing it. Yeah, um, it's good to have that drive, man. Yeah, yeah. but the, none of the none of it is uncomplicated. Right, it's all it's all it's complicated. all an intricate web of mystery. And I it's know. the wild west, and you're it your own boss, and the whole thing's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Period. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's a big shit show. Uh, the decision to give those two records away yeah. for free. I think Another actually one that we thought was we think. At the time, we thought is the reason that we're successful, and in hindsight, it really worked well for you guys. But like, but yeah, I think still to this day, it's uh, it, like eight hundred thousand downloads or that's something. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, was that like what was that decision all about? To me, it was the idea. It was a um, 
to me, it was a rebellion against, particularly at that time, and still to this day, there was the real strong fad of the Kickstarter phenomenon. Oh, right. Where some poor indie musician has to go on the internet and make a completely disingenuous video where they grovel for money yeah. um, in a completely undignified manner from their legion of imagined fans who are going to come to their rescue and help. Uh, and here we were again. Our entire career was just funded out of our personal bank accounts. Yep. Um, we're a minimal band that can record on four microphones that yeah. I already own, or you could borrow from anybody. There's, you know, there's nothing to it. Yeah. Uh, you can get to the start of the race without too much involved. And both of our experience with past records is we didn't want to do the thing where you ceremonialize everything and you do the pressing and you do the liner notes and you get everything in order and then you go do the record release shows at the thing mm -hmm. and 45 people come up and you get you know two blogs to mention it and then that's it and the depression sets in and you go back and do the thing and you never made any money and nothing fucking comes of it and it's a nightmare we both wanted to avoid that and it occurred to us again which is also the hardest Thing that faces um, musicians in our class, we started this thing where we were never uh, a man down. We were never, uh, you know, we were never, we never had our our arm tied around our back. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, if you're Nick Cave, you can't go out and play Bad Seeds records if you don't have the Bad Seeds with you. That's right, down straight. You know? Yeah. The, and I'm sure a Nick Cave solo acoustic show is pretty cool, but I bet Nick Cave doesn't want to do it. Yeah. And if he does, it's because he's got a different mind for it. Here, Joey and I started a thing where we get to go out, no matter where we are on Earth, if we have our guitars in front of us... You're good to go. We can do our full thing. Yeah. We can do it for ourselves, or we can do it for audiences, or we can do it for the microphones that are recording the record. Yeah. We all, we're always on, and it occurred to us that uh, he and I can go do that 120 nights a year, and it doesn't matter what's going on around us we're going to get out of that what we need. Yeah. So you so you just sort of, sort of thought of, of it as a, like an unrelease. Like, well, we got a record out, but we're not going to make a big deal about it, and it's going to be us, free. the work of that year was we were going to go play 100 shows. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was enough with the us playing the songs we had written separately because yeah. we had written songs together. We went and got a nice tape done by a guy called Eric Robinson out in the valley in L.A. Mm -hmm. And um, they were the songs that we wanted to play during the thing. But our... I mean, listen, the other thing is, even in uh, 2011, you're already at the point where you can't make any more money selling songs. Yeah. It's so tough. And it's even... You know, even the people that predate us by five years, it's a different reality what that is. Yeah. And so for us... The only opportunity we had as a band anyway, if it was going to work, is we got to go put ourselves in a situation where 150 people buy a ticket in each city. Right. We thought if we do that, Joey and I, we don't have to change the plan ever again for the rest of our lives. So how did that sit when you ended up signing with Anti and suddenly, obviously, that business model is not going to work for a yeah. record label? How did that infringe on your philosophy? We were trying to philosophy? twist their arm. Yeah, well, it was a big moment for the band. 
we we tried to twist their arm um, on that. We wanted them you wanted to it. release it, and we wanted them to put it up on our website for, for free. free on, oh, really? In a zip file. But why and even sign to Anti just as an as a way to get the word out more? Like, what did yeah, you even need a label validation. for? I was a big fan of Anti from day one. Yeah. Their first release is Tom Waits' Meal Variations, and then they have a string of incredible... One of the greatest records ever. Yeah, one of the greatest <laughs> records ever. But then the my... My love for Joe Henry is via his work with Anti. And yeah. The first, you know, the first one I was ever aware of was the, the Solomon Burke album he produced. Yeah. It's beautiful. That came out there, and then all of Joe's personal records and the Betty Labette record. Yeah. gotten to know T-Bone quite well and I continue to marvel at exactly that. He um, He's the greatest curator around and when he's not choosing your stuff, he somehow maintains this air of mystery that makes you think that nobody ever said no or that your thing's not in play. He's just, you know, he's a, he's a, a dark bit of a wizard. force that works in the shadows and I think he's even sort of unconscious at many times of how it's even functioning. I think he just, T-Bone does T-Bone, and it sort of works. It definitely then, more than sort of even works. Yeah, well, and then when he's <laughs> got to be shrewd, there's no better person, right? and there's no better mind for it. Yeah. Uh, but so with Anti, when that happened, we wanted them to do it, and I believe that the conversation went, why do you guys want this? And we explained in a convoluted way how we thought the entire success of our band was based on the fact that we had insisted that people not pay for our music and yeah. that they receive it as a whole album and then they have to open the folder and they have to drag it into iTunes and yeah. that there's a transaction that occurs that's more than just ending up on a playlist on Spotify and this is why people like us and blah, 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 blah. And then we finished the entire spiel and the head of Anti, this guy Andy Calkin is a wonderful visionary in the music business. He looked at us and he said, did it ever occur to you guys that your band's successful because you're good? <laughs> and Joe and I looked at each other, and honestly, it, that had never occurred That had to not us. occurred to you, yeah. We thought that we were gaming the system at every time. I mean, we figured out how to stay on tour for 120 shows a year, and we figured out how to how to game the hotel system so that we could do it without ever spending more than $80 a night on hotels and but not staying in the motel 6 where you right. get, you know, uh, you know whatever bed bugs. Bed bugs. And there's been hardly any like outsiders involved. Like Ryan Freeland is one guy that came into your world for yeah. Ash and Clay, right? Yeah. Um how was that experience working with an outsider all of a sudden? Ryan was terrific, but he wasn't uh, at that point, he wasn't an outsider. At that point... You'd worked with him with Joe Henry. Yeah, and, yeah. we had developed a, 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 a friendship with Joe and a, yeah. a collaboration with Joe um, where it got to the point where... 
through through where were you working with Joe? Like on a there's like a compilation record that you're on, right? My experience with Joe Henry was that coffee shop where I used to play bridge and stuff. Yeah, that was around the corner from Joe's house. And one time, um, and I was a fan of Joe's, but one time Joe Henry was standing on the corner while I was sitting there smoking a cigarette and playing, you know, Scrabble or something with somebody. And Joe was standing there with his son Levon and yeah. walked up to him and said, "You're Joe Henry." And he said, yeah. And we talked for a second. And I was like, oh, shit. And I was um, incredibly influenced by Joe's work as yeah. a producer. Yeah, um, me too. And inspired by it. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it's just a, it, it explains a really special time in, in musical history and one that we should be very proud of and one that's not... I agree. Not, um, it doesn't feel as distant in the past as the other things that have that effect on me. Yeah. You know, that was happening 15 years ago. Right. And so I found out Joe is in the neighborhood, and then I started I started this kind of letter campaign, letter writing campaign to Joe where I guessed his email address. Really? Yeah, out of thin air. <laughs> I figured it must have been, you know, something... Don't say it. ...at his website, or, you know, like, you know, like webmaster, you know, what Joe at joehenry.com. Yeah, something like that. Okay. And so I wrote this whole letter. I hope that wasn't it that I just. Said. I don't think it was, <laughs> and if it was, I think he's since changed it. But also, Joe is the most accessible and delightful. He's very accessible, earnest yeah. person on earth. So if yeah. anybody wants to pick Joe's brain, they won't. They Here's won't his have number. To search far, but um, but so I I can't remember what problem I was having at the time, but I was having some problem, and there's these various points in your career where you feel like you're at a dead end. And the human instinct is to is to lash out and try to find somebody to fix your problems or help you, and that they never do. But the process of asking for the help and then sort of being turned down and it changing your opinion is actually all the help you need. Mm-hmm. And so I think I wrote some kind of SOS letter to Joe, and um, what he wrote back probably in the moment felt like it was meaningless but actually it was the entire thing that compelled me again to just keep forging ahead um because all of a sudden i had a friend who previously had been a hero yeah and that when i wrote him a letter he didn't say fuck you right. or he didn't not respond, not respond. he yeah. said hey man i feel your pain yeah good luck yeah thanks for thinking of me thanks for all the nice things you said Here's what I'm doing now. I don't know how to help you, but you know, I, I'm here. Yeah. And so I kept in touch with Joe just sort of casually over those years until I gathered the courage to ask him my last record before Joe and I started a band. I asked Joe to sing a duet with me. Yeah. And he very graciously you know, it's funny, it's kind of it's of the 120 songs I published on in album form yeah. over those over that decade it's probably the only song that you know deserves to even be made public and I think I got again I got really lucky cuz I was so close to it I didn't know that it was any better or worse than the others I yeah. thought all the songs on that record were awesome as I was making them sure uh, but right now I listen to it and it's like there's a bunch of other restraint that was held and a bunch of other choices that on that specific cut that were 
So did he end up singing on it? Yeah, so he, he drove his he drove nice. his motorcycle over to my parents' house, and then he walked up the front door, and we hung out for two hours, yeah. and he sang my fucking song. Wicked. And it was, you know, it was everything to me. And What's uh, the name of that song? It's called Big Time. Okay. This bad with witness, like smoke from a railroad in So once the door was open, then I kept trying to pry it yeah. further, you know. So uh, Joey and I learned pretty quickly that we never wanted to work with a producer in the duo format. Okay. That it was like, you know, by the time it would be appropriate for anybody to do any work, all the work was done. Right. You know, all you do is hit record and then it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Yeah. Um, and so we never asked Joe to produce any of those, but from the first one under the Milk Carton Kids, we asked him to write the liner notes. And so for every right. so he's record, involved. Yeah, every record we've put out, we've made him write a paragraph that we put on the back of the vinyl. Yeah. And we put it on our website. And and then also th- throughout the course of that, Joe, you know, Joe's got a Joe's got a really strong artistic beacon. Totally. That, that pulses in a way that when you get to know him, you realize how much of it's hardwired to his DNA. I mean, it's very much like T-Bone in the sense that it's it comes across as such a confident point of view. And I don't know if when he finally retreats into the most uh, secluded part of his house and the place where he can be most vulnerable, I don't know if he sits there and goes... I'm fooling them all or something. I don't something. know what the hell I'm doing. I yeah. bet there's an element of that in there somewhere, maybe. But, but Maybe not anymore, but... But know. when he's present, Joe Henry will give you the answer because he's got a point of view, and it's yeah. beautiful that way. Yeah. Um, and, and I think by design, sort of over whatever he recognized in me on that track that he sang and then on our band as what we do... Um, he very deliberately and I think consciously and slowly incorporated us into his life as well. And mm-hmm. So we'd start to get calls to come contribute to a track that he did. Yeah. Mark Rebo played three tracks on his album Reverie and they were doing the record release in LA and Mark lives in New York. Yeah. And uh, he called me up. He said, hey, can you come Wicked. do that? I said, well, I can't play like Rebo. And he says, well, I'm not asking you to play like Rebo. I'm asking you to play like you. And I said, you know... That's the kind of I call kinda, you want to get in yeah, your life. Yeah, I put the hand, my hand oh, over yeah. the receiver, and I kind of thought, like, wait, did my hero just call me <laughs> and ask me to do my thing sort of in the same lane as that? And then, of course, I went and fully botched the gig. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's even worse than that. I'm like, I'm I'm, 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 uh, I'm a pretty reasonable adult now, but for a, much of my adulthood, I was not reasonable. And the, the Cliff's notes from that was... Uh, I had to play the slide guitar because Reba had done a thing that yeah. very specifically needed to be rendered during this show. Um, and I was complete shit at it. But Joe gave me a wide berth. And at some point, the drummer, Jay Belros, was like, man, I really think you should fill Mark's shoes on that part because it's really important to the arrangement. I said, yeah, of course you're right, Jay. And so I was just trying to make it work. 
not even sound I couldn't att- I couldn't try to make it sound good. I just had I could try to make it work. And so right before the show went on, Joe tapped me on the shoulder as I'm like fidgeting with this slide guitar and he taps me on the shoulder. He goes, Kenneth, I'd like you to meet my friend Bonnie. And I turn around, and it's Bonnie Raitt standing in the dressing room like 30 seconds before the show starts, and I'm holding a fucking slide with the guitar, just going, fuck my life. This is a disaster. And so what that then meant was that, um, and I wasn't on till like the seventh song. So then you had a lot of time to stew in that little pot. Oh, yeah, but the pot was was boiling heavy with... um, with whiskey that I later found out was really expensive whiskey, of which I drank um, about two thirds of a of a like a seven fifty bottle. A tankard. Yeah, is that what is that like a specific? I'm talking like five hundred milliliters. <laughs> a lot of whiskey. Yeah, I drank before song seven came, and oh so then God. I staggered out onto stage with a slide in my hand. And I later found, I tried to replace the Take bottle. Take this, Bonnie Ray. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I completely botched the gig. I was blind drunk. It really? was a disaster. And then the next morning I felt so guilty. It was also a ceremonial bottle of scotch that Jay had brought. There's a whole backstory. Anyway, it was a Wow, you really, of, you really stepped on it, eh? Yeah, it was a bottle of 25-year Macallan that I went and tried to replace the next day until I learned it was a... $1,200 bottle of scotch, of which I drank like two-thirds of in one <laughs> sitting. They came back, when I came out, in the middle of the show, there was just a duet between Joe Henry and I yeah. that Mark plays on the record. Yeah. And that's when David Pilts, the upright bass player, came back and discovered all of the whiskey gone. And so... This is a horrifying story. Oh, it's a nightmare. It's <laughs> I'll never live it down. Uh, none of them let me live it down. I'm constantly reminded of it. But so at that that point, I leave the stage and the band comes back. And um, David was smart enough to know, figure out what had happened. And so he actually took the bottle of whiskey on stage with him nice. for the rest of the show, so that I couldn't drink any more of it. It was a totally angry. But despite even that experience. <laughs> Um, he still calls you he still calls everybody's still friends um he must really like you yeah and so we got to know (laughs) ryan ryan rarely does live sound but ryan did sound on that show and ryan recorded everything that we've ever been over there anyway when it came time to make ash and clay um ryan was the guy Mm -hmm. if i had one more life I could die with her. He in her and going forward, do you predict not? using producers still, just doing it all yourselves? That's sort of the conceptual idea that you're sticking to? No, we're at a real crossroads, and I won't spoil the ending to the story, but we have no idea what's next, and nor do you. And mm-hmm. and <clears throat> a year from now, there could be a duo record coming out, or there could be an orchestra. I don't, you know, who knows? So you're, you're open to other we're ways open. Well, to... Well, the last one... We we felt like our work was done in some ways. This last record, Monterey, I ended up engineering. Yeah, I ended up doing everything. I mean, I mastered it, and we sent it off to, you know, the distributor. Yeah. Um, 
And I'm really proud of that record. I'm proud of how it sounds. I think it's of the three records, it sounds closest to Joey and I, to what our intention is, and and how the dynamics breathe, and and the the both the carelessness of my guitar playing, but also the character of that carelessness. Comes through the best on that. Yeah. Yeah. No. At no point does it not feel deliberate, but it feels like me. And I would not be surprised to find you'd forgotten my name by now. No, I could not see as time went by my shadow fading out. And about half of the songs from Monterey ended up being recorded that way. And then we came back and took the same setup to the um, First Presbyterian Church here in town on Fifth and Church and recorded the rest of the record there over three successive nights and then edited it. Not in front of an audience. No, just in the empty sanctuary. And uh, And then at the end of it, the only disparity was that the reverb in all those rooms sounded different, so right. I I remiked the church here in Nashville for all of the tracks, oh, cool. and I yeah you know shot all this the I've stems done that back too. into yeah. the church and recorded awesome. that that night. Actually, the night the reverb was recorded, uh, Jack White was playing at Bridgestone <laughs> Arena, and we're friends with Jack, and so we went down to see the show and hang out with him. And so while we were at Jack's show up the street in an empty church in Nashville, our new album was just playing on repeat with right. loop record right. so that I could get a few passes of the reverb in case a big truck came by or something. Nice. On this record, it was clear that the songs weren't as good as the record before. Hmm. And Joey and I still like the songs better, but they don't they don't relate to our audience really? in the way that the songs from Ash and Clay do. They you know, there was something we just it wasn't our moment with that record and with that material. Hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you take the three albums, it's... Although it's, five years from now, that might be a different story. It might be a different story. Yeah. But yeah. whatever it is in our immediate experience, I think that's a total of 34 songs or something. Um, we sort of got to the end of that one and we felt like, well, that's that. Really? Um, yeah, and at the same time, we'd been doing a bunch of collaborating. We we went and did a whole tour with Serge Rose and yeah. Nat Smith and Alex Hargraves and Sam Grisman and the six of us on stage. And we were sending up in different ways. And then we've had these wonderful experiences of being um, invited to play Jerry Douglas's transatlantic sessions with yeah. Allie Bain, the Shetland fiddler and a whole slew of, of Highland pipe players and, right. and Irish Amazing. whistles and Scottish whistles and, and hearing how our music sounds in that setting. And then, as weird as doing, you know, recutting a English Dan and John Ford Coley song for mm. an HBO thing where we recut the master and sang it with a band that, and uh, we went and did a charity tour last fall where we were on stage every night for three weeks with uh, Emmylou Harris, Steve Earle, Robert Plant, and Buddy Miller. Shit. And the six of us, everybody showed up like wanting to have fun. And so. Yeah. We'd all show up to sound check at one in the afternoon and figure out a band arrangement with those six people Brilliant. for a few hours, and then we'd put on a show. And it was like, you know, there was no drummer, and there was no, it wasn't the traditional thing, but it's like 
Joey brought his banjo and I brought a dobro and a mandolin and right. and Buddy Miller's got his stuff and yeah. Robert Plant just has his voice and you know some hand drums and Emmy's singing and Steve Earle's got a real faculty on a bunch of instruments and that yeah. was an experience that also continued to deepen our musical thing in a way yeah. where it's occurred to us that whatever the like whatever the strict cloistering we've we've uh, put upon ourselves there are other yeah for right now maybe it's run its course just in the inspiration department and Mm -hmm. that we're gonna dip our toes into some other things and we'll probably come back to it i don't think there will ever be a point in our lives where joey and i won't consider going and playing a show on one microphone with Mm -hmm. just the two of us Uh, there will never be a point where that's not on the table on the table um it's the most exhilarating musical experience I've had thus far in a life that's full Give of music. Me heart, I know a fresh start will show this Can't you feel it? All right. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Kenneth Pattengale, everybody. I really appreciate you tuning in and hanging out with us this week. We will be back next week, and I would love for you to join us then as well. Go subscribe to the show on iTunes, and we'll see you next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. 